hey, Ethos, thanks for hanging out with us again today. We are so glad that you are here, wherever here may be for you. And if you're a little bit newer to our community, to this space, even virtually, we hope that you feel a sense of belonging while you're with us. And if we can serve you in any way, genuinely, our heart's desire is that you uh, would let us know because we really want to be in this together. There's a care card on our website under the resource tab. And if we can meet any sort of practical need in your life, please fill out that care card. Let us know. Everything will remain private, but we genuinely would love to be a part of, of just helping make a difference, both in our city and just in your lives as, as individuals, or maybe even in your family. If you're a servant leader and you serve in any capacity ethos, we'd love for you to come to Team Night. You got all the information in an email, and so I won't go over all of those details, but it's this Thursday. And so I'm really looking forward to sharing some of the details as it relates to what it looks like for us to re-enter back into our gatherings on Sunday mornings. Well, hey, today, this morning, I wanna share from a message entitled, Four Things to Consider When Considering How to Love. I know it's kind of a long title. Uh, I almost call this just four things to consider when considering. Uh, when considering what? Well, I want us to consider what it looks like to actually love people like the scriptures lay out for us how to love people. Not to be just conformed to pop culture's view or perspective on love or whatever book or magazine or blog or news article we've read on how to love, but but genuinely look into the scriptures and be like, how, how are we supposed to love? Because if we're honest today, especially right now, in July of 2020, it's becoming increasingly more difficult to even know what love looks like, not to mention how do we actually practice what it looks like to love. Uh, just a few months ago, I'm sure many of you are aware, one of the greatest documentaries of all time came out, The Last Dance. It was a documentary, if you're unaware, you're probably living under a rock or you don't care about sports, either of which is okay, you are still welcome here. But we, we, we myself, I watched this documentary as soon as it came out. It was the story of Michael Jordan and the Chicago Bulls' last dance, last run, on their way to winning their sixth championship in 1998. And I think one of the reasons why it was so great is because we've been deprived of sports over the last few months, and this was our one attempt an opportunity to engage again in some sort of athletic, competitive nature as we watch this on the television screen. But as, as The Last Dance came out, the debate started raging once again. Uh, who is the greatest of all time? Like, genuinely, who really is the greatest NBA basketball player of all time? Is it Michael Jordan? Is it LeBron James? Is it Kareem Abdul-Jabbar? And I have my opinion, as you have your opinion, and I think it's Allen Iverson, just saying. But nevertheless, that's not up for debate right now. This is a monologue, and eventually we can have a dialogue. But anyway, and the debate's going to go on and on forever, right? Like, we're, we're never going to get to the point where we can definitively say that XYZ player is the greatest NBA player of all time. What we can do, though, is we, we can go to the scriptures. I know that's probably a great leap right now. We're talking about the greatest NBA player of all time all the way to the scriptures. But we can go to the scriptures and see pretty clearly what Jesus told us is the greatest commandment of all time. In fact, at one particular 
occasion in Matthew chapter 22, one of the experts of the law, one of the religious leaders of the day, he asked Jesus, hey, what's, what's like the greatest commandments? And Jesus says, well, you got to love the Lord your God with all your heart, soul, and mind. And then he says, you got to love your neighbor as yourself. And, and if you grew up in church, you probably heard it said like this. And even if you didn't, you've, you've seen this on t-shirts, on billboards, on you know, graffiti, on our artwork, on, on buildings. But love thy neighbor. Love thy neighbor. What does that really mean? Because just to say, love your neighbor, or just go love your neighbor, that's, that's become very, very cliche. Just, just think for just a moment about your, your next door neighbor. Like just the person who lives right next to you in your neighborhood, in your apartment. It's, it's hard enough just to, just to love your next door neighbor. Like, like for, 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 for just a moment, let's, let's keep that word blank, love. And let's just say your neighbor. If we were to kind of just take a 10,000 foot perspective and just, just step back for a moment and look at the way in which most people, most of us, myself included, interact with the people around us, we probably wouldn't fill that blank with love. We'd say, okay, if I were to look at your life, you were to look at my life, and together maybe we were just to look at the world in general, we would say, okay, as it relates to your next door neighbor, more appropriately, what we would say we see practiced is gossip about your neighbor. Um, uh, write a post on Facebook reminding your neighbor about the HOA laws within your neighborhood. Uh, ignore your neighbor. If we were even just to talk about our neighbors at work, we probably wouldn't say that traditionally or historically what we see is love for our neighbor in the cubicle next to us or in the office down the hall from us. What we would say is that we compete with our neighbor um, we, we try to one-up our neighbor, we try, to, we try to blow out the flame of our neighbor, but we probably don't say that, normally speaking, we see a whole lot of love for our work neighbor. What about our, what about our neighbor in traffic? <laughs> we, don't, we don't see a whole lot of love for our neighbor in traffic. We see a whole lot of cutting people off in our neighbor in traffic. We see a whole lot of like giving the universal sign for your number one to our neighbor in traffic. I just received one of those this week, but I probably deserved it because I think I unintentionally did cut somebody off. But nevertheless, we don't see a whole lot of love for our traffic neighbor. In the world today, if we were to fill in that blank, what do we see? We see a whole lot of forget your neighbor, neglect your neighbor, exploit your neighbor, hate your neighbor, oppress your neighbor, cancel your neighbor. But we, as the body of Christ, the church, that's what we are. We, we are intended to be as followers of Jesus. If you're not a follower of Jesus and you're hanging out with us, and you can kind of just sit back, relax, tune in, and, 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 and see why probably at times we've frustrated you with our hypocrisy because we say that we are supposed to be the expressed image of Christ on the earth, but we often don't treat one another or live in community with one another in a way that's very attractive and certainly not in a way that Jesus described for us to live. And I think the more that we think about Jesus' command to love our neighbor, the less cute it sounds and the more painfully aware of how desperate we are 
to experience that command from the pages of the scripture to the application of our lives today. In the very beginning of this pandemic, uh, maybe not necessarily in the beginning of it per se, but short, somewhere around the time in which we were, we were all uh, well, order, ordered to stay at home and we, we were quarantined, uh, we, we really uh, saw this phrase, in this together, everywhere, didn't we? I mean, we, we saw in this together on billboards. We saw media outlets shouting from the rooftops. We're in this together. We saw political figures and just leaders in our community saying we're in this together. We saw t-shirts that were printed in our own city saying they we're in this together. And, and I loved it. But it didn't take long as time went on, really around three or four weeks into it, as more information came out, we all had you know, similar yet very unique experiences on how we were processing that information, information that we were receiving. And from March until now, we've become anything except in this together. And not, not just in the world, but I mean even, even the church at large. It'd be hard to say that humanity right now, that people, any sect of people, any group or gathering or community of people, is really truly in this together. In Ephesians chapter 4, verse 3, the Apostle Paul says, Make every effort to keep yourselves united in the Spirit, binding yourselves together with peace. Now, it, it, is, it is painfully obvious to say that if we're going to be united, then we've got to learn to love. Now, two weeks ago, we talked about the fact that you can actually be in disagreement with somebody and still be aligned with somebody. And if you, if you weren't able to, to lean in and, and to listen to that, that was just two weeks ago, we talked about peacekeepers versus peacemakers. But it's, it's very obvious that, that we got to learn to love if we're going to learn to actually be united. And as a result, if we're going to learn to love, we have to refrain from taking our cues from culture and we've got to look to the scriptures. It's the only truth. We cannot write our own truth today. That's a very popular thing within the millennials and Generation Z. There's this phrase, I'm going to live by my truth. No, no, we got to live by the truth of Jesus Christ and by his truth alone. And if we try to filter anything other than what does the scripture say as it applies to the way in which I ought to live my life, we will all consistently be divided and never truly become United And so in, in Corinth, which is a city on the outer brim of the Mediterranean rim, and uh, this, was, uh, this was an ancient city, a city of which the Apostle Paul wrote two letters to. Actually, it's, most scholars believe, most historians believe he actually wrote four letters to, but only two of them survived. And so we have two of them that we can glean from and learn from in the scriptures. But in, in the city of Corinth, Christians, followers of, of Jesus, they didn't have one central meeting place. Uh, church buildings weren't erected until about 200 years later when persecution began to, began to let up. And so, so these Christians would meet in homes and different halls, different meeting, smaller meeting places all throughout the city. And they, they all had their own leadership. And all of these different congregations or gatherings of people were really developing into rivals with one another, competing groups rather than cooperating in a general cause to further the mission of Jesus in their city. Sound familiar? It's not much unlike churches in cities all across our world today. And so Paul begins to address the infractions 
within these smaller groups in meetings of, of people all throughout the city. And Paul's addressment, or addressing rather, uh, I mean, it applies so much to us today. And I, I just want to hit on one part of what Paul says, because Paul says a whole lot throughout the, the first book that he wrote, the first letter to the to the, to the city at Corinth, referred to as 1 Corinthians in the scriptures. He said a whole lot, but in chapter 8, there's 13 verses, and Paul specifically addresses something that I want us to lean into for just a moment today. Four things, I'm going to give, you, I'm going to give us four things to consider when considering how to love. The, the first one is found in the first three verses of 1 Corinthians 8. Now Paul says, now about food, that's sacrifice to idols. He's moving on to a new topic. He's saying, now, now I want to address some of the infraction that's taking place as it relates to us eating food that has once been sacrificed to idols. He says, now we know that we possess all knowledge, but knowledge puffs up while love builds up. He says, those who think they know something do not yet know as they ought to know, but whoever loves God is known by God. The first thing I want us to consider when considering how to love is consider your own attitude. Look in the mirror and consider your own attitude. If we are going to be the people that God is calling us to be, if we're going to be the church that God is calling us to be, if we're going to be the leaders in our community that God is calling us as followers of Jesus to be, we got to take personal responsibility, not pointing the finger at others. It's easy to point the finger. It's harder oftentimes to look in the mirror and say, I'm going to consider my own attitude. See, too often, quote-unquote strong Christians, as Paul identifies here in 1 Corinthians 8, when they know the Bible, they're prone to be puffed up when they deal with, quote-unquote, weaker Christians who don't know the Scriptures as well. And what Paul is actually saying here in 1 Corinthians 8 is really interesting. He says, the man who thinks he knows everything is actually admitting that he knows nothing. See, knowledge leads to pride, or at least I should say it can. Knowledge has the, um, it's naturally inclined to lead you to become very proud, to lead me to becoming very proud. Knowledge leads to pride. Pride will always lead to lovelessness, which I did look up lovelessness in the dictionary and discovered it's not actually a word, but I think you get the point of what I'm trying to say. Knowledge leads to pride, pride leads to lovelessness, and lovelessness leads to destruction. And I think what we're experiencing today in our world is destruction as a result of lovelessness, which is a result of pride, which is a result of puffed up knowledge. Because oftentimes what happens is the more knowledge we get, the more knowledge we get about COVID-19 because we read more articles, we listen to more podcasts because we saw more interviews, the more knowledge we get as it relates to whatever it may be, the more proud we tend to become leading to lovelessness. And Paul goes on in verse 4 and he says, So then, about eating food sacrificed to idols. Let's get to the point, Paul's saying. He says, We know that an idol is nothing at all in the world, and that there is no God except for one. For even if there are so-called little g-gods, whether in heaven or on earth, as indeed there are many gods and many lords. Yet for us there is but one God, one Father, from whom all things came and for whom we live. And there is but one Lord, Jesus Christ, 
through whom all things came and through whom we live. But not everyone possesses knowledge. Some people are still so accustomed to idols that when they eat sacrificial food, they think of it as having been sacrificed to a god. And since their conscience is weak, that food then is defiled. But food does not bring us near to God. We are no worse if we do not eat and no better if we do. The second thing that I want us to consider that I believe that Paul is laying out here is we got to consider our brother's knowledge or we got to consider our sister's knowledge. We got to consider our neighbor's knowledge. That's probably the best way to, to say it. See, the Christian life cannot be lived in its fullness if, if we're ignorant of God's word. You just can't. I, I want to say that loud and I want to say that really proud. That as a community ethos, we believe this wholeheartedly that this is the book that holds all authority and reveals all truth. And sometimes we got to wrestle with it in order to determine how to discern it and contextualize it for the 21st century as we live in a Western culture in which this book was not written. However, it still contains all truth and still holds all authority. And so for the Christian, for the follower of Jesus, life cannot be lived in its fullness if we're ignorant of God's word. But we got to think for just a moment how patient Jesus was, who was the truth. He was the word incarnate. The word became flesh. And yet he was so patient with his disciples who just were ignorant of the word. These were mostly untrained men and how patient Jesus is calling us because of the way in which he modeled patience himself to live in patience with one another. And yet so often what we do is we allow the knowledge that we have, whether about the scriptures or about something unrelated to the scriptures that oftentimes doesn't even deserve our fight, doesn't even deserve our battle, but we oftentimes allow our knowledge about certain things that we have to lead us to become proud and want to prove that we are right. And as I'm sharing this right now, I myself am being convicted because I have, I have within me like this desire to want to be right, as we all do. And yet we got to remember, though, as Paul says here, that I also have to consider the knowledge of my, of my neighbor. See, love sees knowledge as a tool with which to build people up, not a weapon with which to fight with. Love sees knowledge as an opportunity to help people, not as a weapon to demonize people. See, in our culture today, we are so inundated with uh, the idea of deconstruction. In fact, there's so many podcasts out now, one of which I used to listen to regularly about deconstructing the Christian faith. But what I've discovered is that there are very few people who in their attempts to deconstruct the Christian faith, which at times can be healthy, but they oftentimes where they fail is they don't reconstruct what they've deconstructed. And if that's all that we ever do, we puff ourselves up with knowledge, but we never actually attempt to love, we never actually practice the words of Jesus, which is to love your neighbor as yourself. And so we cannot just become experts at deconstructing what we know to be wrong or we know to be right. We got to become great at reconstructing. It's what Jesus did. He tore down what they once knew to be right, and then he rebuilt what he said, this is the way, the truth, in the life.
And Paul goes on then in verse 9. He says, okay, now be careful, however. And now he's kind of giving some admonition here that, that the exercise of your rights does not become a stumbling block to the weak. Because if, if, if someone with a weak conscience sees you, with all of your knowledge, eating in an idol's temple, won't that person be emboldened to eat what was also sacrificed to idols? So this weak brother or sister for whom Christ died as well, everybody is somebody for whom Christ died, is then destroyed by your knowledge. We could even say then they're divided by your knowledge. There's greater division because of our desire to be right rather than to, rather than to love our neighbor. And so the third thing that I want us to consider is then we also have to consider our neighbor's conscience or our brother's conscience or our sister's conscience, however we want to say it. We've got to consider their knowledge, but we also have to consider their, their conscience. And let me describe conscience for, for just 60 seconds here. Conscience is the inner judge kind of within us that condemns us when we do wrong and commends us when we do right. In Romans chapter 2, verse 15, I won't read all of these scriptures, but I'm going to share some things with us just really quickly. It, Paul says that our conscience bears witness to us. A Christian's conscience in 1 Timothy chapter 1, verse 5, is, is termed as a good conscience. As a regenerated heart, when we're born again, the Spirit of God, God comes to live within us. It, and Paul says to, to Timothy that Christian conscience is a good conscience. Now, repeated sin, not judged and not confessed, will eventually uh, make our conscience a defiled conscience. We see that in Titus chapter 1, verse 15. And eventually, even more than a defiled conscience, it'll lead to a seared or a hardened conscience that no longer convicts us. If we continue to live in a manner that is displeasing to God and we just dismiss the conviction that we once felt from our good conscience, it leads to a hardened or a seared conscience as found in 1 Timothy chapter 4, verse 2. And so here's what I'm saying. We've got to strive to have a conscience that's void of offense and it's void of offending others. And so we've got to do everything possible not to offend one group or another, including our brothers and sisters in the faith. We've got to do everything possible everything possible not to offend. Now, there are some things which are going to offend. The truth of God's word is, is going to lead to healthy offense. What, what, what Paul actually says is, is the, the dividing in Hebrews. I said Paul. I don't actually know the author of Hebrews, but it talks about the dividing of the soul and spirits, the word of God. It's able to kind of split apart some of the things in our lives that need to be cut apart. In other words, the Word of God could lead us to feel like, oh, that hurts. Oh, I'm kind of offended by that. But oh, I also realize and recognize there's something true about that. So, so what I'm not talking about when I say we shouldn't offend anybody is that we always walk on eggshells. No, no, no. We talked last week. We need grace and truth together. What I'm talking about is there are certain things that we experience in life that we make mountains out of that God's like, why are you taking up that fight? Like the only things that should ever really cause somebody to be offended is the, is the preaching of God's word, the truth of God's word, and the convicting power of his Holy Spirit. But not certain things like, can we get real practical, church? Not certain things like, should we or shouldn't we wear masks? Those things should not be things that we as Christians take upon ourselves to prove we're right. No. 
We should do everything we can, as Ephesians 4 said a moment ago, to fight for unity. And Paul says, he says, look, you got to consider your brother's conscience. It boils down to this, that whatever a Christian does, even if it doesn't hurt him personally, it must never hurt somebody else. See, while we may think at times that this limits us, well, I have freedom to do as I please, and I have the liberty, even spiritually, to, to engage in that activity. And it's not a sin, and it's not even a weight in my life, but, but it doesn't limit you. It does just the opposite. It actually allows you to be a greater blessing to others and to win the lost for Christ. Even if a thing is a harmless thing for you, when it hurts somebody else, it has to be given up. It has to be given up. That's what Paul's saying. There are certain things that we just have to say. I may have the freedom to engage in that, but I have to give that up. He goes on in verse 12. I'm going to close it right here. In verse 12, he says, Now when you sin against them in this way, and again, Paul is speaking to people here, that specifically he's talking about people who felt like it was okay to eat meat that was sacrificed to idols, which Paul's saying it actually is. It is okay. It is not against your religious liberties to, to, to eat meat. But if your brother or sister in the faith who has a weaker conscience says, that offends me, then Paul says, give up meat. Give up eating meat. And, 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 and for us, as applied today, there's so many different things that we could say, that we could replace this story, this illustration. We could put something else in there as it relates to what Paul is talking about when he's talking about meat. But, but, but he goes on, he says, when you sin against them in this way and wound their weak conscience, you sin against Christ. Therefore, if what I eat causes my brother or sister to fall into sin, I'll never eat meat again, so that I will not cause them to fall. And so the fourth and the final thing is, when considering how to love, we have to consider Christ. We've got to consider Jesus. In Philippians chapter 2, verse 4 through 7, just this past week at Ethos Youth, we, we taught on these scriptures. Uh, Sam and Fritz Kiger did a great job of teaching our, our Ethos Youth students what it looks like to live a life of humility found in Philippians chapter 2, verse 4. It says that in humility, value others above yourselves. Value your neighbor above yourself. Not looking to your own interests, but each of you to the interests of others. And your relationships with one another have the same mindset as Christ Jesus, who being in the very nature of God, didn't consider equality with God something to be used to his own advantage. Rather, he made himself nothing by taking on the very nature of of a servant. See, one person may be able to watch a movie that another person may found offensive or even cause them to sin or to stumble. And as a result, we should refrain from watching that movie. One person may be able to read a popular novel and not be affected by the causes of that novel, while another person, it would cause them to stumble. And as a result, we should refrain from reading that novel. What I'm saying is sometimes what we do is we create these, I'm going to prove I'm right moments. And as a result, we actually create bigger division within the body of Christ. See, one person may not see politics the same way as you. One person may not view wearing masks or not wearing masks the same as you. One person may not view education the same as you. There's going to be all sorts of things. But if it's not talking, if we're not talking about sin, if we're, not, if we're not explicitly talking about, about, about sin, then we should say, we agree to disagree, and that's okay. But what we refuse to do is allow this to cause us to become divided.
See, we, we, we may place more emphasis on, on being right than we do on being like Jesus, but my prayer is that we would place more emphasis on being like Jesus than we would on being right. And oftentimes as American Christians, we're, we're prone to understanding freedom in a way that's more shaped by the U.S. Constitution than we are by the Bible. And I think that should concern us. Paul in 1 Corinthians seemed really happy to give up his freedom for the sake of loving others. He said, for though I'm free from all, I've made myself a servant to all, that I might win more of them. In fact, in 1 Corinthians 9, he goes on, he says, to the weak I became weak, that I might win the weak. I become all things to all people, that by all means I might save some. I do it all for the sake of the gospel, that I may share with them in its blessings. There is such missional power in this posture that Paul talks about here in 1 Corinthians. See, few things are more beautiful to witness than someone giving up their rights and freedom for the sake of another. And I think there's a lot at stake for us as followers of Jesus in our witness during this entire season. COVID-19, race, relations, inequality, there's so much at stake right now. I really believe there is. I think never before has there been a time in recent history anyway where we've needed to be united. We've needed to pray together. We've needed to worship together. We've needed to come together around truth and stand together, even in the midst of our differences, still saying, yeah, but we're still in this thing together. And through our opportunity to stand, we have to refrain from becoming entangled with lesser things that don't really matter. And we gotta focus on loving our neighbor. And so as we as we think about these four things, as we consider these four things on how to love, I, I want us to genuinely take inventory of our lives and ask the Holy Spirit, Holy Spirit, what would you have me do with what I with what I just heard? What would you have me do with the scriptures and how it relates to me loving the people around me? Because if we can get this right, church, if we can get this right ethos, we can become the most attractive community. Now, I'm not just talking about ethos. I'm talking about the church at large. We are intended, called by God, to be so unbelievably attractive the way in which we treat one another. That no matter what we say or what we stand for or how people may disagree with our beliefs, they say, but I cannot disagree with the way in which you live in community and love one another. By this, all men will know that you are my disciples if you have love one for another. And so my, my hope as we live on mission to love all people in Jesus' name is that we would go further, not just in our knowledge of love, but in our, practic in our, in our practice of love so that we could truly build people up and not just tear, not just tear people down. Let me pray for you today. Heavenly Father, thank you for these moments that we've had today just to share and to learn from your word. And Father, my, our prayer today as we agree together as a community here at Ethos is that you would show us through the power of your spirit how big and high and wide and long your love is not just for us but for all of humanity. And may we live on a mission 
to apply both grace and truth to the practice of the way in which we love people, that we would not take up our own mantle to exercise our own personal freedoms, but rather we would take up the mantle to love our neighbors, to lay down our freedom, become a servant to all people. It's in your name that we pray, amen. If you need prayer for anything today, anything at all, we're here for you. If you want to make a commitment to follow Jesus, let us know. We want to pray with you. We want to follow up with you privately. You can click the button right there in the chat. You can go to our website, fill out the connection card. Either way, we're going to follow up with you so that we can continue in this journey of faith with you. If there's anything else you need prayer for, please let us know. We're here to pray. If there's a practical need again that we can meet in your life, let us know that too because we want to meet those as well. We love you so much, church. We really are in this together. We refuse to ever be anything other than in this together. We love you.